We're going to open the scriptures together. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, I'm very excited for this teaching. It's, it's honestly been something for me, this, some, of the, some of the topics that we'll cover today that have been incredibly formative in my life uh, as, a, as a follower of Jesus, but also as a, as a pastor and what, what I think uh, we need to step into as a people. And so I'm excited for that. But I, I don't know if you ever had this experience. I, the first time I ever heard the song, A Change is Gonna Come, was sung by a white Canadian singer-songwriter named Gavin DeGraw. Now, if you're of a certain age, you may know who that is. Uh, he can sing. Like, he's good. It's, uh, I was like, wow, I like this song. Now, my parents did a good job with the musical formation in our house. Like, I was raised on some good music, but I had never heard that song. I was like, wow, I like this song. Little did I realize that that song was not originally written by white singer-songwriter Gavin DeGraw, Canadian guy. It was originally written and sung by a man named Sam Cooke. It was originally written and sung during the civil rights struggle in the 60s, and he was saying almost longingly and promisingly, a change is going to come. And when I heard him sing it, I was like, oh, now I understand this song. Because the, the, the harmony of his voice, of the lyrical content, of, of what he was saying, all of that came together to say this song is you know, more than just a song. Like, we have those songs we're initially attracted to that are, you know, pop music. You listen to a song at first, you're like, oh, I like this. Then you listen to it like ten more times, you're like, I hate this. Why did I ever like this? But some songs, they meet us at a deeper level. And we start to see what they're about. We start to see into the inside of something that we can't name. And today, I, I simply want to invite us, as we open the scriptures, uh, to, to come with this expectation that perhaps God is wanting to kind of bring all of these things together, the words on the page, his character, you know, the singer of the song, and the, and the melody, the way that it sounds, all together to show us the beautiful God that is revealed in these words as we read in Ephesians chapter 1. So we're starting at the end of verse 8. If you have a Bible open, you can also use your phone app if you're not easily distracted. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, he continues kind of a long diatribe that we started last week. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ. So Paul begins by talking about wisdom and insight. In the scriptures, God's wisdom is displayed in creation. That the wisdom of God is unveiled in the created world. Proverbs 8 writes of the created world. This is wisdom speaking in Proverbs 8. It says, the Lord created me, that being wisdom, at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. Creation, God's wisdom, it's about delight. It's about abundance. You know, many of us think Proverbs is just a bunch of pithy sayings about 
not have to do foolish things. But then in the middle of this, this sort of hymn of creation, wisdom is speaking. And I know many of us have had this experience, whether you've just been walking in nature and you're kind of aware of what's going around you, or going on around you, and you see the scope, the theater of God's grandeur. Or maybe you're a scientist, and you study the created order. You see God's wisdom kind of woven into the world. Paul is using creation language here. But this time, he's talking about a new creation that has been brought forth in Jesus Christ. This new creation is the redemption of humanity. And in Paul's framework, as he's writing in Ephesians, he's trying to show these two groups of people, Jew and Gentile, the Jewish people being the recipients of God's promises, the inheritance of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. And he's trying to show these people how the Jewish story, which was begun long before the Gentiles were incorporated into it, has been the story of salvation for the entire world. That Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was not just a king, a Jewish Messiah, but was king of all the world. And he's trying to show these two groups what this means for them as a part of a new humanity. And friends, one of the beautiful things that we could do just even now is to look around in this room to see how God has brought people forth from every part of the world into this room. To see how God is bringing the things that we think are separate nations and, and races and, and different socioeconomic statuses and bringing them together into a new humanity in Christ Jesus. And throughout Ephesians, Paul is referring to this new humanity as the mystery. And we're going to pick up on this so much throughout the course of Ephesians because it's so fervently about this how do these groups come together under the united head of Jesus Christ? But Paul, in what we saw last week, had these verbs that we looked at. Verbs like chosen, adopted, bestowed, lavished. It says the unfolding of this mystery, the unfolding of this new humanity that is indwelt by God and is empowered by him to live as a sign of a new world. All of this has been done according to the good pleasure of God. Just like creation God didn't say, you know, I'm kind of bored today. I'm going to make a world. We'll see what happens. God made a world out of the abundance of delight of Father, Spirit, and Son. God made the world. He made people in his image out of the abundance of his own love. And just as he has done that, he has now remade the world, the new humanity, according to the good pleasure of God. All of this has been done in delight, not out of compulsion or some divine martyr complex. God created the world in blessing and delight. In the beginning, he said it was good. And he has remade the world in blessing and delight. And all of this, all of this has been done in Paul's special phrase in Ephesians. He says it over and over again in several different ways. In Christ. In Christ. And what Paul is trying to do is to say that our location as people, our very existence has been moved from one realm to another. He writes in Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14. He says, he has rescued us from the power of darkness. This is where we were. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul is saying, like, you have been moved from one way of living that is actually no way of living. It is a way of death and slavery into a way of living that is light and freedom. This brings us back to an important nuance that is layered into the text here. You see, as a, as a pastor, I'm always trying to do a couple of things when we open these words. 
I'm trying to kind of say, this is what I think this is saying, and this is what I think God's Spirit is saying to us collectively. But I'm also trying to listen for how we hear these words. And even as we started last week, there's a lot of words like predestined and chosen. And, and again, for many of us who were uh, you know, raised in different church contexts, those words have certain connotations. You're like, okay, that means something to me. And I'm trying to say, like, maybe that's not what the text is saying, but maybe it's kind of going in this direction. So I'm trying to do that. So today, I'm going to do a little bit of both of those things. Like, maybe try to point us in what I think is the direction that the text is flowing, but also say, hey, perhaps this is how you're hearing it. And Paul writes in verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 1, he says, With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he set forth in Christ Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I think this word plan is important for us to pay attention to because it's such a part of our cultural imagination, right? Uh, there's so many senses of the word plan, but like, verse, like one of the most understandably repeated cliches in our culture is that everything happens for a reason, right? Like whether somebody's having like really good things unfold in their life and they're tracing like the threads that led to them getting this job or meeting this person, like, you know, everything happens for a reason. All this good stuff has come together. Or maybe, maybe you've experienced this, uh, you know, in your own life or maybe you've kind of tried to hold on to this, like when things are falling apart and things seem like there are no plans, no order that nothing has any sort of meaning to it. Like, oh, everything happens for a reason. You try to hold on to some hope that maybe there's a plan that's ordering all of this. And second, I think specifically for people that grew up as Christians, or maybe you're, you know, you're more recent to following Jesus, the notion of a plan gets into the specific plans that God has for us. Verses like 20, uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. They form our imagination that God has drawn out plans for us. And if we're seeking his will and seeking his voice, we'll take the right turns along the way. And for many of us, our understanding of the plan of God is that it's sort of like a GPS. Like God is like, okay, turn right here. Oh, don't turn, the, you turn into a lake there. Don't do that. Uh, turn, turn that way. And we start to, like, understand that God's plan almost has this, like, cascading effect, that it has to be. And then, you know, it gets really fearful if you feel like you've made a couple wrong turns. You're like, oh, oh no, did I miss something there? Did, did, did I take a wrong turn at some point way back when? And, again, the language in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 through 14, kind of has a lot of these words in it, like preordained and, and predestined and chosen and planned. And I think... As I'm sort of listening to how we hear these things, I want to unpack a couple of things. Uh, this week I was watching a video by uh, Caltech physicist Kip Thorne. And he was talking about the physics of the movie Interstellar. Uh, Interstellar stars uh, Matthew McConaughey, Christopher Nolan movie. So like lots of loud symphony uh, and awesome, like awe-inspiring sort of scenes. Uh, really, really beautiful movie. And Dr. Thorne worked with Christopher Nolan and his brother to ensure that the film, while telling this really poignant story, was also like true to the science as we knew it in 2015. And he says, to the point uh, of the movie, somebody asked him, like, what's the point of Interstellar? Like, why did you work on this project as a, as a professor? And he says, the point of the movie, Interstellar, 
is to demonstrate how science can and must respond to threats to human existence like climate change, like rapidly evolving pathogens, and like nuclear events. And I was like, none of that seems relevant, but... <laughs> but when asked what the movie was about, director and screenwriter Christopher Nolan had quite a different answer. He said the movie Interstellar is about human beings and what it means to be human. And what strikes me is that Dr. Thorne you know, so invested in the movie, rightfully so, feels that the movie is about a response to a problem. While Christopher Nolan says the movie is about a revelation of what it means to be human. And I want to draw out this distinction because I think it's so important. We have to ask ourselves the fundamental question, when it comes to the plans of God, are the plans of God, plans for Jesus to die on a cross, are they a response to a problem? Or are they about revelation? Think about the implications of this. Does God need the problem in order to reveal his plans? And what does that mean for the problem itself? Because Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, right? So did God need sin in order to reveal himself in the way that he did? Did God create the problem that he was going to solve in a sense? You see, you start to see the implications of this. Did God need, is he responsible for the sin, the evil, and the brokenness? And many Christians and theologians throughout history have answered faithfully yes to this. Following Calvin, many Calvinists adopted a, a, a form of theology known as superlapsarianism. The notion that God has decreed to permit humanity to fall into sin, he's also decreed to save some of the fallen. Jonathan Edwards, who's buried not too far from here, writes poignantly that God created the world as it is with all of its sinfulness and brokenness in order to display his glory in the world. And again, I'm not I'm just kind of pointing to these, not to criticize, but just to say like this is a, a, a response that faithful Christians, people who are trying to follow Jesus, have come to. Alvin Plantinga, a Christian philosopher, writes powerfully about a world that features incarnation of Jesus, Jesus becoming one of us, living our lives, and atonement, Jesus dying on the cross, being the best of all possible worlds, and thus being the world that is the hand of an infinitely good God. But there, from my vantage point, there is a way that we hear the word plans of God that assumes a lot and takes much for granted. If the plan of God was always to send Jesus to die on the cross, does Jesus need our sin? Does Jesus' atonement, is it contingent upon our brokenness? Does that mean then we can in any meaningful way determine good from evil? Because if all the brokenness is somehow a manifestation of God's will, of, of something that he has foreordained, then that says a lot about God. I think David Bindley Hart puts the equation clearly. He says, simply said, if God required evil to accomplish his good ends, the revelation of his nature to finite minds, then not only would evil possess a real existence over against the good, but God himself would be dependent upon evil to the point of constituting a dimension of his identity, even if only as a contrast. Now, there's a way where I could be over-intellectualizing here, but I don't think I am, and I'm going to kind of drill down a little bit more. You see, A.W. Tozer says, the way that we see God is the most important thing about us. That it forms our responses in the world. It shows who we think God is and thus who we think we are. 
And Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, Ivan, one of the brothers, protests that God should have designed a world in such a way that it should require the suffering of a child. And he finishes, if you've read the book, there's this like really famous speech that he gives. And he finishes with this seemingly blasphemous flourish. And I'm going to read it to you just kind of in all of its power and glory. Ivan says, and if the suffering of children goes to make up the sum of suffering needed to buy truth, then I assert beforehand that the whole of truth is not worth such a price. I don't want harmony for love of mankind. I don't want it. I want to remain with unrequited suffering. I'd rather remain with my unrequited suffering and my unquenched indignation, even if I am wrong. Besides, they have put too high a price on harmony. We can't afford to pay so much for admission, and therefore I hasten to return my ticket, and it is my duty, if only as an honest man, to return it as far ahead of time as possible, which is what I am doing. It's not that I don't accept God, Alyosha. I just must respectfully return him the ticket. David Bentley Hart says of Ivan's exasperation, he says, my contention is that this speech places Ivan's sensibility much nearer to the authentic vision of the New Testament than are many of the more pious and conventional forms of Christian conviction today. The gospel of the ancient church was always one of rebellion against those principalities and powers, death being chief among them, that enslave and torment creation. Nowhere does the New Testament rationalize evil or accord it necessary or treat it as part of the necessary fabric of God's word. All that Christian scripture asserts is that evil cannot defeat God's purposes or thwart the coming of his kingdom. Divine providence, of course, will always bring about God's good ends despite and its sense through the evils of this world. But that is not the same thing as saying that evil has a necessary part to play in God's plan. And that God required evil to bring about the kingdom. As the empty tomb of Christ above all reveals the verdict of God that rescues and redeems creation also overturns the order of the fallen world and shatters the powers of historical and natural necessity that the fallen world comprises. Friends, it is one thing for us to philosophize about, okay, why do bad things happen? It's another thing to see the character of God in this season. And I said to Andrea earlier, she shared this in the first service as well. I didn't know what she was going to say today. But so many of us have been there, right? God, like, I'm trying to follow you. I'm in this place, and I don't really know what's happening. And this sense that this is all unfolding to some plan seems kind of twisted. And it, it seems like I, I have to like kind of accept all these in, like really uh, you know, contrasting things in the midst of trying to find out who you are. David Bentley Hart says one more time, he says, Ours is, the Christian religion, a religion of salvation. Our faith is in a God who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin. The emptiness of waste and death, the forces, whether calculating malevolence or imbecile chance, that shatter living souls. And so we are permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred. Friends, I just want to say, as a pastor, there are often times where I don't know why I or why you are going through what you're going through. I don't know what the cause of it is. But the sense that God has enabled us because of Jesus' empty tomb, because he has conquered death, as David Bentley Hart says, to hate those things that God hates. That God doesn't hold hands with death. 
that God doesn't need our evil and our sin and our brokenness to reveal himself, that the plan that was laid before the foundation of the world is that God would do whatever it takes to be God with us and for us and in our midst. I am comforted by that. And again, maybe, maybe for you, that's not as big of a question. Maybe for you, you're completely fine with that sense of mystery. But for me, I see these words sometimes, and I'm like, I think we need to unpack that because I think it has a lot to say about God. And there are things in this life that will break our, our, our experience and our expectations of what we thought God was going to do. There are experiences and seasons we will go through. But what we find is that God is the God who is present through it all because he has crossed every distance. This is the news of Easter, that there is nothing that we could ever encounter in this life. Paul says this in Romans 8, that would ever separate us from God's love because of what Jesus Christ has done and because he's given us his Holy Spirit. And so how are we to understand the plan of God? Going back to our text, Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. With all wisdom and insight, he's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, that God has revealed himself in Jesus. And then when Jesus encounters death, he casts it out. He conquers it, he overcomes it. And this is the promise that is given to us, that there is life abundantly and forevermore because of what Jesus has done. And that we, because God does not himself have to hold hands with death and try to make sense of it, but we can say that is not how it's supposed to be. And even in the midst of our perplexity and our questioning, find that God is faithful to bring his good ends to completion, no matter what may come. Paul is describing here how God was always, before the foundations of the world, before creation itself existed, he always intended to be present among us, to dwell with us as our king, and to gather up all things, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. To gather up all things, things in heaven and on earth, under his peaceful and beautiful and just reign. That no matter what comes, God will make a way. David Bentley Hart, one more time, he says, God has willed his good in creatures from eternity and will bring it to pass despite our rebellion. And by so ordering all things toward his goodness that even evil, which he does not cause, becomes an occasion of the operations of grace. The scandal of the cross of Jesus is not that God somehow needed it in order to redeem us. The scandal of the cross of Jesus is that as the culmination of human freedom and idolatry, the culmination of broken systems and powers all converge upon Jesus on that day outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, the scandal of the cross of Jesus is that he can take the worst that we can do and transform it into an invitation for his grace by the power of his blood. The scandal of the cross of Jesus is that it makes us this new humanity that Paul is referencing here in Ephesians chapter 1. The plan that Paul has said we've seen a glimpse of in Jesus and will be brought to full conclusion in the fullness of time is that Jesus will reveal God's heart to us fully, and he has done so on the cross. Paul goes on in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1. He says, In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, 
might live for the praise of his glory. Now, again, I've been talking about this kind of Jew and Gentile distinction that Paul is working with. It's important here in verse 12 that you see here on the screen. When Paul is saying we, he's using this us language right here. I believe he's talking about Jewish Christians, the first ones to receive the gospel of Jesus. And in verse 13, he says, in him you also when you heard, and at that point, I think he's turning and he's referencing the Ephesian Christians who were largely Gentile. If you read in Acts 19 and 20, you see kind of the birth of the Ephesian church. We'll get to that in a little while, but it's kind of a crazy story. But it's so important for us to see this distinction because it's all about Paul talking about what Jesus has done and drawing these two groups together. He goes on, verse 13, we'll pick it up there. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. Paul says that we have all been marked with a seal. Now in this culture, a seal or a signet ring marked the possessions of a household. Incidentally, the word that, that was translated here also kind of has like the connotation of not just possessions, but people. Uh, and we have all been brought into one household, one family with Christ as the head. Paul then tells us that the seal is the presence of God himself, the Holy Spirit. That God has not just marked us with like some like random mark that like, okay, you're mine now. He's given us his very spirit as a marker that we are a part of his household. Paul says of the spirit in verse 14 that it is the pledge of our inheritance, God's own people. The word translated pledge here is the Greek word erobon, which can mean deposit or down payment. It's in a sense saying God is, is, is putting down the, the assurance of his promise that he will bring to conclusion in the end. That he's given us his presence to be with us in every way. Paul is saying that the spirit of God that dwells in each of us individually and dwells among us collectively is uniting us as a new humanity, as a down payment from the future that God will bring to fruition as he brings all things to their beautiful conclusion. And as Paul will write stirringly elsewhere, reflecting on what it means both for the Spirit of God to be our seal and for us to be adopted as God's children. He says in Romans 8, he says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. As we talk about suffering, as we talk about sorrow, and Paul here says that to be marked by a seal of the Holy Spirit is to share in his sufferings. What we find is that what is true of Jesus becomes true of us because as Paul keeps saying, we are in Christ. So that no matter what we experience in this life, the heartache, the, the brokenness that often finds its way to our doorstep, that God is redeeming in our lives, just as he redeemed in Christ the brokenness of the world. Paul is giving us a quick summary then at the end of this, this long kind of drawn out thought, how we receive this seal, how we become a part of this new humanity. We hear the word of truth. 
the first step of faith, Ecclesia, is simply hearing. It doesn't always mean hearing in a setting like this, but it's not less than that. But oftentimes we hear the story of what Jesus has done. However, it is articulated and God starts to get a hold of our heart. And I know that for many of us today, like, there's just something that happens when we turn our attention towards God's story. And maybe for some of you today, like for the first time, you're like, I, I didn't know it was about that. That's God's spirit testifying with your spirit saying, this is your story. This is not just a story about what happened. This is a story about what happens. When God takes a hold of our lives, we hear the word of truth. This is the gospel of salvation, the good news, that there is nothing that will keep God from his plans to dwell in our midst. If you read the end of the story, Revelation 21 and 22, it all starts in a garden and then it ends in a city. And, and, and the, the revelator writes, he says, there's no need for the sun because God himself will be their light. That God will dwell in the midst of the city. He will wipe every tear away from our eyes. Like all of this has been moving in this direction. This is the plan that was been laid before the foundations of the world. That God would be our God. That he would, we would know ourselves as his children. And that we would be together as a new humanity. This is the plan that has been unfolding, has been revealed in Jesus on the cross. And we see that even in that moment, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then notice he calls death an enemy. And in that moment, in that glorious moment that we live in hope of in the future, God will destroy death. And he will bring us to himself. He does not wield our suffering, our sorrow, the sin that we do, the sin that we endure, the death that we feel the sting of. He does not wield these things as instruments, but he casts them out, overcoming them by his very death. And Paul says, all of this is our inheritance. Now, if I told you today that, like, hey, you had a, you know, uncle twice removed that died and left you $2 million, all you have to do is walk over to the Bank of America and sign a piece of paper and take it, and you didn't go, you're a fool. Right? Like, hey, uh, you know, you're just like, oh, I'm just happy to know that it's there. Like, you guys want to go to lunch? Like, there's $2 million waiting for you right now. All you have to do is walk down the street and take it. And this is what Paul is saying. In this section of Ephesians, this section that he's been describing, all this, like, crazy, cosmic, beautiful stuff, there is not a single verb that is directed towards us saying, like, you got to do this. He's just saying, this is who Jesus is. And the implicit message of all of that is this is a gift. All of this is a gift and it has been done for you. Take it. And so friends, today, our inheritance is of the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. The God who was opposed to sin and death. The God who invites us as his children. And for many of us today, we have to stop seeing that as a nice truth that we're just happy is, is real. And just take it. So over the next few moments, we're going to invite you to the table, you know, kind of this sacramental act of receiving. And then as we stand for worship, I, I just want to encourage you, keep that sense alive. Like if God's just saying, hey, I've got more for you. I've got an inheritance for you. Here, don't leave today without receiving the gift that is yours because you are invited to be in Christ. Let us pray together. Jesus.
Lord, your presence here among us, God. Lord, is walking the aisles, Lord, is doing your work of healing, of beckoning, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that we would not just kind of skate by the moment, Lord. God, but we would see that the beauty of your revelation is not just so that we could have these kind of big thoughts about God or understand the world more clearly, but because we, so we can know ourselves as your children. God, that we can know that we are in co-heirs with Christ Jesus, inheritors of your kingdom. God, a kingdom that will stand forever. God, a kingdom that is both coming and future, but is near and now because your presence has marked us. God, we are yours. And your presence doesn't just mark us as a possession, God, but it marks us for transformation. Not just our transformation, but transformation of communities, of broken family stories, God. So, Lord, would you help us to just take it, to receive, first from your table, God. Second, to really evaluate, Lord, what, what is the story that I've been telling myself? What is the story that I've been living into? What is the inheritance that I've been striving after when yours, the endless riches of grace that have been lavished upon us, are right there? Jesus, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the, the letter to the Ephesians, God. Would you bring them to life in our, in our lives? In your name we pray. In the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.